Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. This fall, we are rejoining and concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark, where we're learning the way of Jesus together. Thanks for joining us. Good to be gathered here uh, as we continue this practice of standing to honor and respect the word of God. Uh, my friend, Bethany Russell, is going to read our scripture passage for us this morning. She will conclude the reading of God's word by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and we will respond by saying, thanks be to God. A reading from Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I love that practice that we have started together. It was funny this morning, Bethany said, hey, did y'all ask me to read because my name's Bethany? And I was like, no, I didn't even put that together. We're not that smart. We're not that smart. But Bethany, we are grateful for your reading today. I want to ask you all a question as we get started this morning. Why do you follow Jesus? I know that's kind of a vulnerable and personal question, but I want you to think about this in your mind. Why do you follow Jesus? In a room this size, there may be a few different answers to that, right? Some follow Jesus because it was a faith your family passed on to you, and it's what you should do. You just inherited a faith. Other follow Jesus because It will lead to health and wealth and prosperity. Life will go well if we follow Jesus. No troubles. And some follow Jesus for what he can give us. I remember in 2012, it's almost 10 years ago now when our daughters died. I remember reading a book and the author made this statement. He said, it is walking through pain and suffering that we discover whether we love God for what he can give us or for who he is. I just want to say that again. It is through walking through pain and suffering that we discover whether we love God for what he can give us or whether we love him for who he is. 
And I realized in the midst of grief and loss, there was a refining that God wanted to do in me to determine if I loved him for who he is rather than what he could give me. It made me define what I value most. There's a number of reasons people decide to follow Jesus, but what I want to suggest this morning, there is only one reason to follow Jesus that will not lead to disappointment, It will not lead to resentment or burnout or bitterness or earning or striving or achieving and feeling like a failure. If you're following in your notes, the only reason to follow Jesus that leads to true and abundant life is this. Jesus first loved us. Following him is an expression of loving him in return. Jesus' love for us is the only lasting motivation to follow him. I've tried it, friends. The rule-keeping does not work. We just get tired of the failure. The only lasting motivation in following Jesus is that it is a response that he first loved us. And that's what we're going to see today in two different dinners that we're going to read about. So I want you to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. The good news, there's only 16 chapters in Mark, so we are almost done. We're almost there. Chapter 14. If you do not have a Bible, we have black Bibles in the seat racks in front of you. Mark chapter 14 can be found on page 826 of those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, take a copy of God's word home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's word. Mark chapter 14. As we make our way there, I want to remind you that we're in a teaching series in the gospel of Mark, and we're spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. And I think we're going to see the way of Jesus abundantly clear today. We begin with the first dinner in chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Bethany already read this for us. It begins, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So let's just pause here for a moment. We're going to talk about the significance and timing of this event and the significance of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in just a few minutes when we get to verse 12. But for right now, we need to know this is taking place during the last week of Jesus' life. This specific event is taking place on Wednesday evening of that week. Jesus will die on Friday. This is Wednesday. The past two weeks, we've been in chapter 13. Jesus has been teaching about the end times. And now in chapter 14, Jesus has left Jerusalem and he's left the temple and he's walked with his disciples to a small town outside the city called Bethany. I want to put a map on the screen for you. Bethany's about two miles away from Jerusalem. They've walked there. They're at the home of a man named Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon. But some people have speculated that Jesus had healed him and he wanted to thank him with a dinner. 
The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus' friends Mary and Martha were there and that their brother Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead, was also at this dinner. So perhaps that man is their father. We don't know. And while Jesus was reclining at the table, a woman, the Gospel of John tells us this was Mary, Martha's and Lazarus's sister, but Mark does not identify her by a name. So Mark says a woman carrying an alabaster jar that may have looked something like this, containing 12 ounces of pure oil. It was very likely a family heirloom. And she breaks this alabaster jar She breaks it at the neck, rendering the jar useless, and she pours the oil all over Jesus' head, anointing him like kings were anointed in the ancient world. And we're told this is a very expensive oil. The Bible uses the word nard, which is a sweet-smelling perfume and a rare plant found only in India. If you look ahead at verse 5, it says the perfume costs at least a year's wages for a day labor. In today's economy, the perfume is worth about thirty dollars to $40,000. And what I want us to see, what I want us to see in this dinner, if you're following in your notes, is this woman worships Jesus. She worships him. And I think a lot of times we hear the word worship and we think singing, Right? I mean, we worshiped earlier in the service, and that is true. But worship is much bigger than music. Worship is about value. The best definition of worship I can give you is this. If you're following in your notes, worship is our natural response to what we value most. It's our natural response to what we value most. C.S. Lewis, author and theologian, famously said, we worship what we love. We worship what we love. That's why worship is that thing we all do on any given day. We are all worshipers because worship is about saying this person, this thing, this experience, whatever name you want to put on it, whatever we value most is what we worship. So the question is not, will we worship? The question is, what will we worship? Because we all worship something. And this woman's worship was unreserved. It was costly. It was uninhibited. She was solely focused on Jesus. She didn't expect anything in return. She freely gave this gift to him. And she wasn't concerned with what others would think of her actions. So I can't imagine what goes through her head immediately after anointing Jesus. We read in verses four to five, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Our English translations don't do this justice. The word indignant means to snort or to roar. It was used to describe horses. So what this means is the room erupted. The room erupted in rebuke of this woman who just did something beautiful for Jesus. And I think some of the reason for that is because it was customary during big festivals like Passover to remember the poor and take special offerings and give that offering to the poor. And these men that gathered thought that selling the perfume and giving the money to the poor might be a better option. 
Their thought is that this woman just wasted a ton of money. And the disciples were involved in this. This isn't just all religious leaders. These are followers of Jesus. And catch this, friends. When they demean the woman, they demean Jesus because the th- they thought to honor Jesus in this manner was extravagant and a waste. But Jesus sees things totally differently. Jesus responds in verses 6 to 9. He says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my body for burial. Jesus stands up for the woman, and he compliments her by saying, she has done a beautiful thing. And real quick, because this is not the main part of the story, but I do want to mention this. Jesus doesn't mean don't care for the poor when he says this. He's not diminishing our obligation to care for the poor because he says you can help them anytime you want. He implies responsibility that we will care for the poor. What he's doing is commending this woman for putting him above everything else. And I would say when we put Jesus above everything else, we will be compelled to help those in need Because Jesus is our motivation to do that. But back to the main point. In verse 8, Jesus said she did what she could. Which takes us back to the widow that gave her last two pennies at the temple when we studied chapter 12. This is where the Bible is amazing. There's so many connections and links. So I want to compare those two stories on the screen really quick. In the story of the widow in chapter 12, verse 44, we're told that she gave all she had... And in this story in the original language, we read what she had, she did. There's just this hyperlink going on. And both women serve as examples of total commitment that hold nothing back from Jesus. In our language here at Cherry Hills, we would say they gave themselves fully. Jesus takes it back to motive. It's not concerned about the what, but the why. She gave a beautiful gift from a beautiful heart. And Jesus provides more detail of this beautiful act in verse 8 when he says, She has prepared my body for burial. What in the world is he talking about? In ancient times, the first step in preparing a body for burial was to take the body, rinse it with water, and anoint it with perfumed oil. So think about this, right? The oil would have been poured over Jesus, in his hair, in his beard, on his clothes, on his skin. Wherever he moved for the next 48 hours that remained of his life, this perfume would go with him into the Passover, into the Garden of Gethsemane, into the high priest's home, into Pilate's palace. It would have smelled as he was nailed to the cross and they would have smelled it at the foot of the cross when they cast lots to see who would get his clothes. And we read in the Gospels that Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and they didn't have time to wash him or anoint him. So this woman did, in fact, prepare Jesus' body for burial. Jesus entered the last 48 hours of his life prepared to die because of the extravagant act of this one woman. And Jesus concludes telling about this woman in verse 9 by saying, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached... Throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And I just thought about this the week. Like, why? Like, why this story? 
Why is this story included in the Bible? Why is it known throughout the world? And I believe her story has been told throughout the world and throughout history because if you're following in your notes, she is an example of a life touched by the love of Jesus. She is an example of a life touched by the love of Jesus. She's someone who recognizes the love of Jesus in their life and she worships Jesus because he is what she values most. So let's stop for a moment and self-assess. Right? Does that describe you? And does it describe me? If you're following in your notes, do we value Jesus more than anything else? Do we value him more than anything else? And don't get freaked out here. Right? Don't get freaked out and compare yourself to the woman in the story. I'm not talking about necessarily big things. It certainly can be. But it's interesting to me that Jesus praises the widow who gave two pennies and the woman who anointed him with $40,000 worth of oil. It's not the what, it's the motive that matters. And I'm not talking about perfection here. We are broken, emotional, fickle people who on any given day value other things above Jesus. And here's what I would say, like where do we return to center? Where do we return when we've gone astray and we have valued other things more than Jesus? When we have disobeyed the word of God and his instructions on how to live, do we confess and come back to Jesus? Do we value him more than anything? The question we have to wrestle with is, do we value Jesus? Because if we do value Jesus then our lives will overflow with acts of worship. Our lives will be defined by acts of love because our love is a response to being loved by him. And the story of the first dinner ends in verses 10 to 11, which tell us then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And what Mark does here, he's a brilliant writer. Mark bookends the story of worship with the religious officials who want Jesus betrayed and Judas who is more than willing to do so. It's a story of extraordinary adoration and worship sandwiched between extraordinary malice and betrayal showing what the religious leaders and Judas valued most, right? It's a comparison contrast of value and love and worship. Dinner number two. Many of you have probably heard about this dinner. It's called the Last Supper. We are given a picture of Jesus' love for us in this supper. And we're introduced to this dinner in a similar way that we were introduced to the first dinner by identifying the time of year as the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Verse 12 tells us this. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And this is where we're just gonna slow down for a few minutes and talk about the significance of the timing of Jesus' life right here. Passover was first observed as God's people who had been in slavery for 400 years. You got to go back to the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God's people had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and they were about to experience an exodus or an exit from Egypt. 
And if you're not familiar with the story, God chose a man named Moses to confront the leader of Egypt named Pharaoh. And Moses goes nine times and he says, let my people go, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. And after each of these refusals, God sends a plague on the land. And then the 10th time Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh refuses, God gives Moses specific instructions because this is the last plague. These instructions are found in Exodus chapter 12. And God's people were instructed to choose an innocent lamb and slaughter the lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the sides and the tops of their door frames of their house. I have a picture for you of what that might have looked like. They covered their homes with the blood of an innocent lamb, and the Israelites found their homes passed over by the angel of death. Things happened exactly as God said, and the next morning, God's people left their lives of slavery and began the exodus out of Egypt. And once they got out of Egypt, God's people were instructed to celebrate this Passover every year. To this day, Jewish people celebrate Passover. And if you're following in your notes, Passover is a reminder of the exodus from slavery in Egypt and the freedom provided by God through the blood of an innocent lamb. Jewish scholars have called the Passover the meal of meals, the most important meal of the year. Is that me? No. The most important meal of the year. Now, fast forward about 4,000 years from the first Passover in Exodus to what we read about in the Gospel of Mark. And my prayer here is that lights are going to start flashing as the Holy Spirit starts making connections for us between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The timing that all of this is taking place during Passover is of the utmost importance. We have to know this. It's no coincidence that Jesus is in Jerusalem and is going to die during Passover. The one who is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was headed to his death. And in verses 13 to 15, Jesus sends two of his disciples into Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover meal. If this is the meal of meals, the meal of the year, then there needs to be preparations, the location, the food, and the room. How many parents in the room, no matter what age you are, have hosted a birthday party for one of your kids? It's awful. And um, it's uh, just go rent somewhere out. It's worth it. We just hosted a birthday party and all the preparation that just went into that. So this is the meal of meals, the meal of the year. They have to make these preparations. And so the Passover meal has a a certain order to it. And after everyone arrived, Jesus would have offered some introductory remarks and he would have begun the liturgy of a Passover that still followed to this day in Jewish households. It begins with someone asking the question, Why is this night different from any other night? And it would be at this point that the host, and Jesus is the host of this dinner, that he would tell the history of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt and the meaning of the various elements of the meal. And as the host of the dinner, Jesus would have been the one retelling this story. And then they would begin the meal. And at some point during the early 
time of the meal, Jesus says this in verses 17 to 21. He says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So we put ourselves in this room. The air was just sucked out of the room. Right? Passover is a festive atmosphere. It is a party. And now the room is filled with sorrow and worry. Back to the birthday party we just hosted. It was a tie-dye birthday party. So imagine me going to the kids, they're tie-dyeing, and I say, hey kids, it's time for cake, but I want you to know this. One of you is going to betray me, and I'm going to die. That's a downer. I think they'd run off screaming and tell their parents and get a bunch of phone calls. But this is the air that's just been sucked from the room. And they look at one another and they're like, is it going to be me? What, what's going on here? I, I want to put an image on the screen so you have an idea of what this was like that they were all reclining at the table. In ancient times, they would lean on the table with their feet away from the table, very close to one another. And we know from our previous story that Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus. And it's believed that Judas was reclining at the table right next to Jesus, to his left, which was the spot given to the most honored guest at a Passover meal. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him, yet he gave him a seat of honor next to him. With Jesus' head, I mean, imagine this, Jesus' head inches away from Judas' heart. Even the act of dipping the bread in a cup and giving it to Judas was filled with meaning. In the culture of the day, to take bread and dip it in a common dish and offer it to another person was a gesture of friendship. We can't miss this. To the end, Jesus was offering Judas friendship and forgiveness. And Judas took the bread without repentance. Judas had one final opportunity to repent from his sin and accept Jesus as his savior. Jesus showed him scandalous love. And I appreciate what one author said about this interaction with Judas. He said this, here is the whole human situation. God has given us wills that are free. His love appeals to us. His truth warns us, but there is no compulsion. It is the awful responsibility of people that we can spurn the appeal of God's love and disregard the warning of his voice. In the end, there's no one but ourselves responsible for our sin. In this moment, Judas had a choice. We all have a choice. We all make choices every day and they can affect our entire lives. What a contrast, right? Contrast between the woman who worshiped and values Jesus and loved Jesus and Judas who betrays him. Back to the Passover meal. They're centered around four different cups of wine that help tell the story of deliverance. Remember God's people being freed from slavery in Egypt. We'll talk more about the cup in a few minutes, but would you read verse 22 with me in the first gray box on your notes? It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, eat. this is my body. 
The bread in a Jewish Passover meal is called the bread of affliction. And it stands as the reminder of the bread God's people ate while in Egypt. And the bread took on an entirely new significance now. If you're following in your notes, the bread of affliction represented Jesus' body and the affliction he would experience on the cross. And let me hit pause for just a moment to clarify something we believe. The, the phrase, this is my body, has caused much disagreement and debate over what Jesus actually meant. The Catholic faith tradition believes in something called transubstantiation, where they believe the bread and the wine are literally and actually transformed into Jesus' body and blood. As Protestants, we don't believe that. We believe that the bread and the cup are symbols to help us remember Jesus' sacrifice. But I also want to point to an area where I think we Protestants have gotten communion wrong in the past too. Jesus said to eat this bread in remembrance of him. And I love the word remembrance in the Bible. It's one of my favorite words. If you're following in your notes, remembering in the Bible has this idea of bringing the past to the present. We bring the past to the present. So we look backward and remember something that's happened in the past and bring it to the present. So communion is not just this memorial meal of remembering. It is an applying the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to our lives today. There's this quote that I've read in the past that summarized how the Israelites were to live their lives. I love it. It could apply to us. It says, the Israelites were called to walk backwards into the future. God's people were to remember the past in the present so they could endure the future. And that's what's going on when we take communion. And then after the bread, it's thought that Jesus would have taken the third cup of wine. There's four cups of wine in a Passover meal. The third cup of wine, it's called the cup of redemption. And this cup symbolized the blood of the Passover lamb that the people put over their door frames during the Exodus. So at this point in the meal, Jesus would be retelling these stories of the blood of the lamb. And then he says this in verses 23 to 25. Let's read verses 23 to 24 together in the second gray box. And I'll finish in verse 25. It says, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Verse 25 says, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of heaven. If you're following in your notes, the cup of redemption represented Jesus' blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of sin. By calling the cup the new covenant in my blood, Jesus was intentionally contrasting the shedding of his blood with the old covenant's foundation in blood. The covenant he made with people when he rescued them from slavery. And in this last supper and his death and resurrection, Jesus ushers in a new covenant. I know this can be tricky to understand. This is some deep stuff. But the New Testament book of Hebrews helps explain this for us. I want to put Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 12 on the screen. It says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus, 
offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for our sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. The Apostle Paul would succinctly write it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when we practice communion, we remember that we're people of the new covenant. Right? We no longer have to strive to cover our own guilt and shame. The priests used to have to kill lambs and sprinkle blood on the altar to cover over sin, not take sins away to just cover over it. But our sin has been taken away. And it's in communion we remember that there's nothing we've done to earn forgiveness or to achieve forgiveness. Communion's not a reward for the godly. It's a gift for the broken. None of us deserves the meal. It's a reminder if you're following in your notes, communion is a reminder that the new covenant declares it is finished. It is finished. Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice. I love how pastor and author Daniel Aiken describes the Last Supper. He writes this. I want to put this on the screen for you. He said, we could also refer to it as the first supper, as it inaugurates the new covenant, which God made with us through the Lord Jesus the true Passover lamb who had been sacrificed for us, his death made possible a new and greater exodus as we are set free from our slavery to sin. Two stories, both stories of extravagant love, one of a woman pouring out expensive perfume on Jesus and the other story of Jesus pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of sin. And in the second dinner, we see an example of the greatest love the world has ever seen. Self-sacrificing, humble, giving. And in the first dinner, we see an example of a response to that love. The way of Jesus is that he first loved us and we respond to his love. Taken together they cause us to pause and ask this question, if you're following in your notes. Has my life been touched by the love of Jesus? Has my life been touched by the love of Jesus? And you might ask this question, how do I know that? How do I know? And I want to suggest there's two things And you may want to write this on your notes. You you will know that your life has been touched by the love of Jesus by answering two questions. The first, what do I value most? We asked it earlier, what do I value most? How would you answer that? And then the second question that we can ask to know if our lives have been touched by the love of Jesus is, am I loving well? Am I loving well? There's a pastor in New York City named Pete Scazzaro who's been influential in my life. And he had this quote. I read it again this morning and it it just stopped me. He says, loving God and loving others is the defining characteristic of a mature Christian. I just think sometimes we think it's the more we know and the more we think and it's just intellectual assent. But the defining characteristic of a mature Christian of giving ourselves fully to him is how well are we loving? How are we loving? So we always want to provide you with a moment to respond to God's word because I believe the Holy Spirit is living and active and God's word pierces us to the heart. 
So I, I wanna invite you to consider what God is saying to you today. Maybe for the first time you realize I have never valued Jesus more than anything else. Today can be a day where you become a follower of Jesus. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, today can be a day of realignment. But I was thinking about this. I go to the chiropractor once a month to get realigned. How much more do I need to stop and do that with my faith? Maybe you became a follower of Jesus with some different expectations and you need to determine the reason you want to follow him. Or or you've gotten your values out of order. Or there's an area of your life where you would say, I'm not loving well and I need the love of Jesus. This can be a day where you confess and you ask God to help you value and love him more than anything else. You can get realigned. But we wanna invite you to take the next moment or two and consider what God might be saying to you. What's the Holy Spirit speaking in this moment? the human condition is that we don't always value above everything and that we don't love the way you do. So Lord, would you you change us from the inside out? Would our lives be a response to your great love for us? God, we need you. We cannot do this on our own. God, would you fill us today afresh with your Holy Spirit that we might desire you and that we might be image bearers of your love. God, thanks for this reminder. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful story of this woman who sets an example of a life touched by the love of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.